I invite you to turn to John's Gospel this morning. We're, I hope it's not lost on anyone how God works out providence in particular ways that sort of make a seamless sewing together of the things that he providentially has um, juxtaposed together or connected together. And having spent three months in uh, chapter one and then stopping for Christmas, and at that point we're looking at the birth of the Savior, as we did last week in our Christmas service. So we're looking at Christ as John is defining him at the beginning of his gospel. We dropped back and looked at that birth of that same Christ Jesus, as he was a baby, born in the manger, born to a virgin, Mary. And there we saw him and we were marveling that this is God with us. This is our beloved Emmanuel. And so now we come back to another occasion for rejoicing. And that is chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana. It's interesting that this is... A, uh, the first of what will be, according to John's gospel, eight different miracles that take place in his account. And it's important to start out by learning what the difference between a miracle and a sign is because John's preference is to refer to these as signs, which I think is very appropriate. A miracle is the event for sure. <clears throat> but in God's economy, it's a sign. Miracle is an intervention on the natural order of things, natural laws that God has set in place in his creation. It's to interrupt those laws. It's to intervene in those laws. It's to set them aside to accomplish certain purposes. And here in the wedding of Cana, we see water turned into wine without explanation, any scientific explanation, that is. And so these things... John rightly points out here, much later than the synoptic gospel writers, realizes that these are signs. They're signs from God. And so instead of thinking of this in terms of a miracle, which it most certainly is, these miracles have a purpose, and that is to be a sign. And a sign is informational, as it, I have a definition here, a symbol indicating the existence of something. It points to something in particular. Points to something in particular. So when you have a, you're taking your family to a particular amusement park and you're driving in your car and you see a sign that says that amusement park, I used to name a particular one that I won't name anymore, Barbara's former employer, but when you see that sign, you don't get excited and shout to the kids in the back seat. We're here. You see the sign? It says this is the amusement park. And so we pull the car over. We put the blanket out and bring out the picnic baskets. And we celebrate there this happy moment where we're at the sign. The sign is meant to draw our attention to something else, something in particular, something perhaps future or something present. But we're to look not at the miracle that provided the sign. We're to look for what God would have us notice. Who is this that performed the miracle? And what exactly is he trying to show us by giving us this particular sign? 
So we're going to look at chapter 2. We're going to look beginning in verse 1 through 12. We'll read that together and open in prayer. Let's read. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it out. So they took it, rather. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants had, who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana, in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Father, we thank you so much. We are at another benchmark moment in this treatise on our Lord Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into this world as a Savior. So, Lord, help us to understand the importance here. This is more than something just written as an aside, a wedding, where Jesus is giving some miracle to impress the host and the people there. That's not what's happening. That's not why this has been kept in the eternal record, the inspired word of God. There are significant things that we need to look at here. There are actually many things to look at here. I pray you give us the time and the wherewithal to mine them out that you might receive glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. So on the third day, this would be three days after Philip and Nathaniel verse 43 in chapter 1 and following. After that, three days after that, must have been their travel time to get to Cana. Now they're in Cana for this wedding. Cana would have been maybe nine miles or so, it's thought, from Nazareth. So these were close towns. Everybody knew each other. Mary's already there. So it's very, could likely be, Lightfoot was thinking maybe the, Mary, the mother of Cleopas, uh, this is possibly her house. I don't know how he arrived at that. That's just his view. But certainly this must be somebody she at the very least knew very well. Close friend, perhaps a relative. She's there. Jesus is invited. 
So Jesus, Jesus comes to attend. So the Mary, or the mother of Jesus who was there, he refrains from calling her Mary. In the gospel, he refers to her as the mother of the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So these disciples would have been the five that we already looked at in chapter 1. Uh, we looked at uh, first Andrew, of course, and then someone with him. They were both disciples of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist pointed out, this is the Christ who has uh, come as the Savior of the sin of the world. And we looked at all of that. So we had Andrew and what's thought to be pretty convincingly that it's John that's there with him, John, the writer of the gospel. So Andrew goes to his brother Peter, so that makes three, and you have Philip and Nathaniel. Nathaniel is most likely Bartholomew in the count of the twelve. So it's those five that he's with three days after uh, we leave chapter one, where Philip and Nathaniel interacted. You remember that. So verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, this would be Jesus, They have no wine. It's interesting that groom's family, the groom is responsible in those days for the expenses of the wedding. So this is a pretty significant cause for embarrassment that they would run out of wine. So she's pointing that out to Jesus. There's no wine. They've run out of wine. That already intrigued me. I hope it did you as well. This is going to be a problem. Why did Jesus' mother say this to him? I hope you're asking those questions in your mind. What was her expectation from him, more importantly? What was the relationship between Mary and whoever's wedding this is where she would be, feel comfortable to intervene in this way? What business is it of hers? And you can even pick that up in the choice of words that our Lord had in response to her. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Indeed. What is she, why is she telling him? What is she hoping for? So, she's certainly known for 30 years since Gabriel had given her the announcement that this child of hers, who exactly he would be, right? This is going to be Emmanuel. This is the Savior among us. This is going to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So she knows that. She's known that for 30 years. What is she expecting? Why does she ask? Why does she get involved? It's interesting, isn't it? What sort of relationship does she have? Verse 4, And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now this response to her initially, this first clause of his response to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Is interesting in and of itself. This, even the first word, woman, this is his mother. Now to our delicate ears and our sort of um, vernacular and the way we would address our mother wouldn't probably would not be woman. Or he might be in trouble. This isn't that. He's not being disrespectful. He's not being indignant at all. It's more like I thought about it, and I thought, at least in my mind, if this is helpful, it's like, madam, 
What does this have to do with me? It's, it's a good point that he wants to draw our attention to, to be sure. Mary did what all mothers would do in a similar situation. They're with their sons, and there's a problem. They, the expectation, can we at least assume from the fact of her motherhood that this is a typical mom that's like, I'm going to tell my son because he can do something about it. Maybe it, wasn't, maybe it wouldn't be in the form of some great miracle. Maybe it's just that he's my son and he'll maybe do something about this. But then again, remember, she knows who this son is. She knows what he's capable of. So Mary has to learn. And she will painfully over time. This is more than any ordinary son, isn't it? My hour has not yet come. This is a reminder. This is, this is a reminder. What, why are you having me tend to something that is going on with this wedding? Wonderful event. We're all enjoying ourselves. So, madam, what, what, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What's he doing here? So he's not disrespecting his mother. He's preparing her. He's preparing her. This is love, friends. He's preparing her because there is a greater will that is moving him now. More than something requested by his own mother. Remember the way that he responded when they couldn't find him? When he was off teaching? Yes. <laughs> now, that could be construed as a, a little disrespectful, but it's not because of who he is. What does this have to do with me? That particular word, me, do you remember, Mary, who I am as you said, I don't know to Gabriel how this is going to happen. I be an, a virgin who hasn't been with a man, but behold thy bond slave, be it done unto me according to thy word. Do you remember? He's preparing her. So I've got just three principles this morning on this glorious event. It's, it's just really an amazing story once you dig down into it. There's just three principles. We've already, I'd like you to notice this. Here's the first one. I couldn't get past this response of Jesus. Jesus' response, number one, what does this have to do with me, should be our response as Christians. How do I mean that? That question ought to determine how you respond to any and every statement from anyone in authority. Parental, politician, judge, whatever it might be. Now, I'm not trying to advocate for some sort of uprising or rebellion. He hear me out. This question should be the first thing that stays up front in your mind. Okay, what does this have to do with me? Even in our marriages, we should do that, shouldn't we? Is there not a greater will moving in us? Shouldn't we be on our guard that somebody might be making a statement that is 
something that doesn't involve us or something that I'm not necessarily just because somebody made a statement and they're in a, some kind of a position of authority. And yes, the Bible says we submit to the authorities because they're ordained by God. But I don't always do that in every case. It's not a knee-jerk response. I don't just do that automatically. Why? Because my life belongs to someone else. It's not mine anymore. I have a foreign will, if you will, that oversees and supersedes all these other human wills. I want, he could say, he could have said it this way. If you'll allow me. What does this, how should this affect me, Mary? What were you looking for? You remember the, what are you seeking question? Keep both these juxtaposed in your mind all the time. What are you actually seeking? And what does it have to do with me as a twice-born child of God, here to give the gospel to others? Here's whose life was saved, who, as Bonhoeffer says, when, when God calls someone, he bids them come die. That I'm dead to my own will. It's a foreign will I live for now. That's why he revealed it to me, to you and I. It should be all of us. This should be no less than a deliberate reminder to Mary. Do you remember? Do you remember? And why? It strikes me that he loves her and he's preparing her. This is just the beginning, isn't it? This is a happy occasion. Be on your guard, Mary. Be on your guard. Woman? Whoa. That's pretty straightforward. Yes. What does this have to do with me? My time has not come. What other sense can you make out of this? I'm satisfied with that. So, he has to begin this separation, this, this pulling away, not in the way we might understand that initially. Just in assuming the role that he's there for, because she's, she's going to see some things that are going to be hurtful. So in response to his mother and this whole idea of separation, you can see in Mark 3, 31 to 35, for instance, he's beginning his earthly ministry. There we find him saying, and his mother and his brothers, this is his family. This is Mary. This is his brothers and sisters, the ones that were conceived after Jesus by Joseph. They were standing outside. They sent him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, your, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, isn't this curious? Who are my mother and my brothers? I love how he gets us to think. It's what he's doing with her in our text. What does this have? I want you to think about what this might have to do with me. And that, as I'm saying, needs to resonate in all those who are called by the will of God to fulfill his will in any given situation, right? Who are my brothers and my sister? Did you have to define them so it's a genealogical thing it's you're not thinking straight he's got to get them thinking biblically that's all of our challenge isn't it to think biblically verse 34 and looking about at those who sat around him he said here are my mother 
and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. See? He who follows and submits to and remains subordinate to the, a, a superior will. That's the point. They're following me because it's the call of the Father who called them, who wrote their name in a book quite a long time ago. And he's calling them. And they're responding. So Jesus is saying, as, as the Son of Man, it's those that are following and responding to a will that isn't even my own. It's the Father's. I came to do whose will? The Father's will. He's reminding his mother. He loves her. So he's not being harsh or unkind. He's being blunt to send a clear message to someone that he loves, to his mother. So all of his actions and activities must subordinate themselves to whatever the father has in mind in terms of the plan of redemption and the reason he's here. So Jesus' response is also an act of love meant to pull away and prepare her for what lies ahead. Do you remember Simeon's prophecy in Luke? We were just looking at Zechariah's prophecy, the prophecy uh, we saw Gabriel last week for Christmas showing up to Mary, and that long, beautiful, magnificent of hers, absolutely glorious piece of literature. And we see Zechariah's prophecy. Anna is another one who's going to have something prophetic to say after Simeon. But Simeon says this in Luke 2, 34 to 35. Simeon's there with Mary and Joseph as they bring the child to the temple. Behold, this child <clears throat> excuse me, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You're about to be tore up, mother. Prepare yourself. Think, think carefully and don't let go of why I'm here. The next time, the only other time that Jesus addresses her this way, just one other time in John's gospel where he says woman to Mary. Do you know when it is? He's on the cross. He's on the cross. John 19, 26, 27, when Jesus saw his mother, he's hanging on the cross. And the disciple whom he loved, this is John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman. Woman. Behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour on, the disciple took her to his own home. Remarkable. Here's the point. If you love someone, though it may sting, you set them free. None of you got that? Did you get it? 
If you love someone, though it may sting, you set them free. That was for you, brother. But it's true, isn't it? Oh, that can be the hardest part, can it? Have you had to let a loved one go? Because to keep them would be selfish, you'd have to jump through certain hoops. And what does that have to do with me comes into play? I can't do that. I don't have the prerogative to do that. Just to keep you. I love you enough to let you go. He wants that, her to have that love because he knows what's coming. Verse 5, his mother said to his servants, this shows that his mother gets it. Because instead of just curling up and, say, and not saying anything or or reproving him for addressing her that way. She's got the confidence of, the mother here, of a mother here in verse 5. She gets it. She knows who he is. She knows all of these things. And his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is powerful stuff. Whatever may have sounded like a no to others, she pressed on with confidence that he would act. And he does. In a big way, doesn't he? In a big way. Verse 6 and 7. Now there were, here's how he acts, there were six stone jars, water jars, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Why is God telling us this? Is what we should be asking ourselves. Hmm. Reminded me of Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That's what these jars were for for water, for purification. Fill it up with that. Hebrews 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus sanctifies the church having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, Ephesians 5.26. This isn't just coincidence. This isn't just a, a random point that doesn't really matter. Everything in Scripture matters. And we should ask ourselves that. Would we get to the true meaning of what Scripture is saying? Because without the meaning of Scripture, you do not have the Scripture. So, this is jars that hold waters for purification. He has them fill the jars with that water and fill them up to the brim. So this gives me another principle that comes to mind. Second, vessels must be empty. 
before they can be filled with the pure living water of God's word. That, as it turns out, is the sticky wicket, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Bless you. It's the emptying part. Let's see, what is, what, what is, hold on a second. Okay, I was with you and I was ready to walk down the aisle, raise that hand until you said that. What exactly did you mean by emptying? Well, I'll let Luther say this. Martin Luther said, God creates out of nothing. He creates ex nihilo, doesn't he? Out of nothing. He's the only being that can. God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. End quote. It's pretty good, isn't it? So verse 8 through 10. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So follow this now. It's amazing. So they took it. They took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) So the water becomes, the water now become wine. I like something they, uh, an English poet, an Anglican named Richard Crashaw said, the conscious water saw its God and blushed. Isn't that awesome? That's good stuff. It's time to interject with this. If you haven't picked this up already in your own studies or here this morning, wine represents the joy we find in Christ. Wine represents the joy. That's how Scripture portrays it in a number of ways, but that's one main purpose of it in the New Testament. God gives us wine, it says in Psalm 104, verse 15, to gladden the heart of man. So it's about this water and wine and the symbolism that it has in Christ And what that should create in us, Reformed believers, what should it be? (laughs) You can can say it, you can shout it, you can stand up and wave your arms when you do. You won't do it, will you? What is it, Barry, that keeps us from doing that? Never mind. Let's move on. (laughs) Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But, listen to this. Had to do some... Investigating so that we can qualify everything as we go, right? Better be careful here. So to those who excuse their overindulgence, pointing out the fact that Jesus created six 20-plus jugs, gallons of wine after they polished off the wine they already have. Well, to these partygoers, <laughs> we want to clarify 
I can't think of anyone who stated this better than Archbishop Trench. Some of you may be familiar with him. Listen, listen to how he puts it, especially you biblical counselors. Listen very carefully. And then maybe we'll do some explaining if it's necessary. Here's what he said to those people who blame their indulgence, which would qualify for drunkenness on these things because of what Jesus did. I mean, clearly, they're going to be inebriated with those six jars of wine, aren't they? Listen to this. With the same justice, then, every good gift of God, which is open to any possible abuse, every plenteous return on the field, of the field, every large abundance of the vineyard, might be accused of being a temptation put in men's way. And so in some sort, it is approving of men's temperance and moderation in the midst of abundance. You get that? For man is not to be perfected by exemption from temptation, but rather by victory in temptation. Who do you love more? Who do you want controlling you? That's the point of Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine to where you lose control of the spirits moving you. That's the point. But rather by victory in temptation. And the only temperance which has any value, which indeed deserves the name, has its source not in the scanty supply, but in the strong self-restraint. End quote. Passion is mine. How does this get so mucked up in the body of Christ? Help me. We're working on conflict resolution, and we're talking about all of the different areas. Just this morning, what a coincidence, we're talking about what, all of the issues that I forget how the author Strock refers to them, but these I like to refer to rather as preference issues. They're not, they're not sin issues, right? And that's one of them. You all know what I'm talking about. We should expect that when the King of Kings gives, the King of Kings gives generously. He gives abundantly. Listen to the grandeur of Ahasuerus. You remember in Esther, King Ahasuerus? So this was all through the Old Testament, by the way. If you do your own concordance search or however you want to go about doing a systematic search of what the role of this particular beverage was, I commend it to you. So Esther verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Now, is this, is this justifying or otherwise advocating drunkenness? No, right now it's speaking to the generosity of a king, isn't it? I'm going to give and I'm going to give big. <laughs> I came to bring them life and... You're going to have so much abundance, you're not going to know what to do with it. What is your sin-stricken, shriveled-up heart doing with it? That's the point. That's the point. Psalm 65 was read this morning for this reason. 
Verse 9 through 13 was read, You visit the earth. This is the Lord of abundance. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, soften it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. We revel in the abundance. We don't use it as an excuse for sinful license. So we have to be careful, don't we? There's whole denominations, there's whole groups of Christians, denominations or whatever, certain churches or whatever, that have been so frightened about this, this is just, you will not touch alcohol. If you do, you're in trouble. So that's, you, don't, you, you can't talk about it. You can't mention it. Why do I bring it up? Because it's in the Word of God. If it makes people uncomfortable, it makes people uncomfortable. It's the whole counsel of God we're after, isn't it? So the whole counsel of God, what is this saying? The analogia scripturae, the analogy of scripture. What does the whole of scripture say about this? This is one place. Verse 12, the pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. Verse 13, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This is a joyous occasion. We don't have to walk around with a countenance that looks like the faceplate for the book of Lamentations. That doesn't make us more pious. As a matter of fact, I think if, if we're thinking right here, that's offensive. Have we not been given every reason to rejoice, to be filled with joy? Do you lack anything? Is there anything that you have lacked and can say to God, no, you're, you're Jehovah Jireh, but... I didn't get this. No, the psalmist clarifies that, doesn't he? I've known people for a long time, this is my paraphrase from my memory, and I've never seen a child of God go without, ever. Look around you. This is a creation of abundance indeed. Remember when Jesus was talking to the Galilean fishermen and told them, I always wonder what... A, a rough, tough, blue-collar Galilean fisherman would think by having some guy show up on a shore and tell him where to cast the net. I'll tell you where to cast the net. I mean, they've got to be tired. They're casting the net all night. They're tired. These are workers. These are men with calloused hands. And yet in Luke 5, 6 to 7, And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Why did he do that? So that we would get the message. I'm not stingy. I'm a God of abundance. I'm your father. I want to impress you with all that I've given you. You will never go without. Ever. What are you doing in your heart? That's the issue. 
So number three, third principle, as we're moving through, the problem is not an inexhaustible abundance in creation, but an insatiable appetite in craving. That's the problem. So the problem isn't you gave us too much. The problem isn't six jars, 20 plus gallons to justify our overindulgence when drunkenness is clearly forbidden. But don't swing the pendulum the other way. You know, you're free to be happy. You're, you're free to be joyful. It's okay that there's symbolism to the Christ with wine. If we don't see that, we've missed a lot. We've missed a lot from Scripture. To dismiss the sin of drunkenness because Jesus made these jugs of wine is to totally misunderstand where covetousness and sinful indulgence comes from. It comes from the heart. Now you have there in the reference, Mark 7, 21 to 23, it is out of the, he corrects the Pharisees that are there who being legalistic about his disciples not washing their hands before they ate. Aha, we've got you now. It's, you, you guys are looking at this upside, inside out rather. It's out of the heart that man sins. And the Proverbs 23, 29 to 35 is, is a very sobering passage to read about somebody who's overindulging in wine. He's filled with sorrow. His life is a misery. He wakes up at the top of a mess, doesn't know how he got there, and he's just wondering, and now he's just craving for wine again. This is a drunkard. It's sad. So there's that. So it's not God tempting man to sin that causes him to sin. May it never be. It's sinful man who gives in to temptation because of the weakness of his flesh. James 1, 13 to 14, right? Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Well, there you go. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Jesus isn't tempting anyone. The temptation's there, though, isn't it? It was for him, too, when he was in the wilderness with the Satan, with the devil. Temptation was there, and it was strong. Forty days and forty nights without food. That's a pretty strong temptation to have while up. You should make these stones into bread. The son who can make water into wine can surely make these stones into nice warm loaves of bread. James 1 is very important so we realize each person is tempted, verse 14, when he is lured and enticed by what? His own, and I would add fallen, as a reminder, desires. So we want to be rich in God, even if we're poor in possessions. It's the point, for instance, in Luke 12, 13 to 14. Listen to this. The 13 to 15. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, <laughs> who made me a judge or arbiter over you? These questions of his, they're penetrating, aren't they? 
Verse 15, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And what is it we often find ourselves striving for? We hoard things. It's pathetic. In the abundance of stuff, I feel satisfied. Reminds me of somebody, doesn't it? I've... I've filled my barns with grain, and what shall I do? I'll check with my soul. Soul, you've done well. What should we do? Why? You should build bigger barns. Jesus calls that man a fool because he hasn't even considered that that night his soul would be required of him. Remember the story? All throughout Scripture, these points are being made if we would pay attention and apply them to our lives. And then already it's interesting that we ended up citing this particular passage this morning. I had to smile because it uh, fits very well in the sermon here. Romans 14, 17, 18. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what? It's, the kingdom of God isn't about drinking wine and overindulging in eating. Remember when they turned the communion service into a gluttonous event and used it to get drunk on the, on the wine? He had to clear that all up in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul did. It's not about eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy. And as Charles had pointed out this morning, those are internal things. Righteousness, peace, and what? Joy. It's okay to, to look at your heart if you lack joy. We have every reason, every occasion to be rejoicing always. And then again, what? Rejoice. We should be filled with joy. What do these elements represent? Tetelestai, to say the least. It's finished. All the heavy lifting's done. It's all done. What do you have left for us? Believe and enjoy what I've given you. And tell people about me. Because they need to hear my name. They need to know. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not in about drinking wine. We want to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18 again. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So the problem is deprivation. So the solution's not deprivation. Do you see the difference? The problem is that we're depraved. So the solution isn't going to be to deprive. Let's all meet. Let's all stop and sever everything that has anything to do with an alcoholic beverage and let's meet in a place and we better do this regularly and drink a lot of coffee and be trapped in another way because we're calling ourselves something that there's no cure for. Whereas if we'll call it what God calls it, it gets us to the cross. It's not alcoholism. This is not a disease. There's no hope in that. Just a lot of coffee drinking. 
So the answer isn't to deprive you of things. It might be with your children as you're raising your children. Let's take that away because they're indulging. They don't know any better. But for us, I need to look at my heart. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. This is what the world does. It gives you it upside down. See, initially, the enticements of the world are sparkly, aren't they? But then there's what we refer to as a law of diminishing returns. Right? So you get drawn in further and further. And the next thing you know, you're older and older. And it's just not quite cutting it anymore. So the devil's enticements are attractive, they're even alluring. And once you're seduced, over time, the reward that they promise is less and less. So sadly, folks think that more and more indulgence is what's needed, and they make an absolute shipwreck of their lives, of their health, their jobs, their families. Does it exactly in the reverse? The good wine first, just like the, the master, the MC of the event here, this wedding. This is usually how it goes but you've saved the good wine for last. Because they wouldn't know any better if you gave them good wine up front and they're celebrating. You're just, just such an awesome host. You've got the best wine that there is. This is excellent. And then as the night wears on, it slowly gets watered down or they start switching bottles or whatever the case is. They don't know the difference anyway, but you've done this differently. They've drunk all of the poor wine first and you saved the best wine for last. That's how God's economy works. Right? So the word of God warns us of a life of suffering, rejection, persecution, doesn't it? But it keeps its promise to reward exponentially and eternally in the next life. This is the best one. The world offers its enticements and it becomes most seductive and alluring in the dawn of our lives. But then what happens? It steals away that which it promised in the twilight of our lives, doesn't it? Where did it go? I'm older now, and I remember how I thought back then. I was impervious. Unstoppable, young, strong. Had a lot of things on the ball. Oh, yeah. Here come the enticements. Oh, you're this. You can do that. You'll accomplish this. You'll accomplish that. And you're drawn in. And the next thing you know, time has passed. Those things that were supposed to be promised, that was brought in in the dawn of our lives, now in the twilight, are snatched away. And all we're looking at 
is the haunting laughter of the wicked one. You fool. You've wasted your life running after the things of this world that I dangled in front of your face when you were young, and now you're still pathetically pursuing it as you're older, and that's sad because it's not giving you what you thought because you weren't looking for the right things in your heart. You should have been looking for me. I'm the wine. I satisfy. Only me. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So we saw the miracle of the birth of the incarnation and now we see the miracle of the birth of his almighty power. And that's got the disciples' attention. Five are sitting there, mouths agape, I'm sure, manifested his glory. Every other created being can only hope to reflect his glory. The moon has no reason to boast in a brightness it receives from the sun. We're to reflect his glory. He wants that image back. He wants that reflection back. Jesus as God is the only being able to manifest his own glory. This is not lost on them. This is, they see this. And we saw this in John chapter 1, didn't we? Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. And his disciples believed in him. The disciples who previously believed him now believe in him fully. We're going to follow you. As, uh, what are you seeking? Um, where do you live? <laughs> okay. Um, come and see. And they followed. And they've stayed with him these few days now. Remember, three days later, here they are at this wedding. And they're believing him. He's like a rabbi to them. But now they believe in him. The manifestation of his power is not just a miracle. It's a sign. A sign confirming who the Son of Man is as the Savior, the Son of God. Amazing. Isaiah 40, verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Mark eight thirty eight. When Jesus returns, he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. Oh, so I guess he's still okay with mom. That's good. And they stayed there for a few days. Augustine said this, the veil is lifted when you turn to the Lord. That's what happened to the disciples. And what was water becomes to you wine. He's both. He's both. Read all the prophetic books with no understanding of Christ and what will you find more insipid or tasteless? 
understand Christ in them, not only does what you read acquire a savor, it even intoxicates. Have you felt that before? You feel like David in those moments. You're in your devotional, and he just keeps lavishing you with his grace and glory, with the beauty of his love, with, and you're pouring out your devotion to him and your love for him. And you almost, it's like David, you have to say, stop. The cup is doing what? It's overflowing. We see him now as he's being presented in all of his glory in Scripture. I see him now. I read the Bible, parts of it, as much as I could stand before I knew Christ. But now that I know him, I see him there. That's the difference. Psalm 4, 6 and 7. And then we're going to get ready for communion. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What does this have to do with me? Jesus asked. Would we see these things from Scripture? The signs, what symbolizes Christ? Some of you are familiar with William Tyndale. Born in 1494, executed in 1536, just outside Brussels. He translated the first English Bible. He was working, he finished the New Testament, he's working on the Old Testament. They found him, they jailed him for a year in in 1535. And in 1536, they strangled him and then burned him at the stake. I thought about that. And I thought, you wanted to be thorough, that's for sure. I don't want you even talking we will hang your dead body in public this was a serious biblical scholar and linguist he did an amazing job obviously as you can get by the dates he was a contemporary of Luther Luther was a big influence on him but he's a scholar I want you to get that part he's a linguist this is a serious minded Accommodition, if you will. Do you want to know how he defined the gospel? Now it's in Middle English. So we're going to have to, I'll, I'll translate as we go. Be thankful it's not, not in Old English. I couldn't even read it. But I put it in this outline because I want you to see it. This is a man who is a high scholastic linguist who translated the Bible and lost his life for it. And here's how he defined the euangelio, which is our gospel, our evangel. 
This must be a real scholarly treatment, right? This is going to be something that we're going to need to unpack. It's going to be so theological. It's going to be so systematic. It's going to have so much to it. We better listen carefully. It's a Greek word and signifieth good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings and maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing, dance, leap for joy. Where is that? Where is it? Does he not deserve that? Tyndale thought so. And this is a pretty bright man who they had to strangle to get him to stop. Why? Because he was giving all of these heavy, deep theological treatises on things? No, because of this. This has to stop. And many in the body of Christ are stopped. You're afraid to smile, afraid to raise your hand, afraid to say, Amen. Singing. Dancing. When David danced into town because of the victory that the Lord had brought him, And his wife, Saul's daughter, was in the window watching him, filled with bitterness and envy. She rebuked David. Did the Lord rebuke David as well? Who got rebuked? Michael. His wife. You may know somebody who's in the body of Christ, who sings and dances because the joy of the Lord fills their heart. They might even do that in a bowling alley. They might even do that while being filmed, dancing with other dudes in a living room, just some old hip-hop tune from the 90s. God help us. Have mercy on us. There is a life to live. A life set free. God help us. Have mercy on us. And help us to get there. That we would not offend you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy that we do find in our gospel, in our evangel. Help us, O Lord. It is only our pride, it's only our pettiness that withholds us. Oh, sure, we have to maintain decorum. It's not meant to be chaotic. You're not the author of chaos, but of peace. But we're meant to rejoice. And when it's time to sing, we should sing wholeheartedly. When it's time to stand, even to put our hands in the air. When it's time to pray, oh Lord, help us. Pray and sing in such a way that manifests your glory to a watching world with so little, if anything, for them to hope in, to find joy in, to enjoy, to look to, to deliver them. There are those of us who know the emptiness of the things the world has to offer. But you said when tribulation comes in this world, not to let it trouble us because you've overcome the world. Overcome the world in us now, O Lord. 
that we might be an empty vessel ready for you to pour the pure water into us. So it has its cleansing effects and turn it into wine, Lord, which would become the joy in our hearts for knowing you and declaring that you are the Savior, the Son of God, who has come into this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.